God is the consummate giver to all who seek Him. Now, in verse 11, he kind of looks back the other way and says, But for you who forsake the Lord, who forget My holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword. All of you will bow down to the slaughter because I called and you did not answer. And we studied that on Sunday, didn't we? And i got to tell you, I was surprised at the reaction. I really was. I, I kind of thought, here's one we'll just kind of throw out there and move on. I had a lot of reaction. from Not negative, it was, it was positive, it was good reaction, but a lot of reaction from that teaching. My dear sister came up to me with a twinkle in her eye and said, Pastor Rick, there's preaching and there's meddling. And this morning, you were meddling. <laughs> and I got to tell you, I got a kick out of that, but I am so thankful we have a God who meddles with us. Aren't you? A God who sticks His nose in our business. That's what He does with me all the time. Lord, can't you just stay out of this one? No, I love you too much, Rick. I love you so much, I'm going to meddle. And every time he does, I end up thankful for it. Every time he does, I turn around and say, Wow, Lord, I'm so glad you stuck your nose in because I would have been in trouble if you hadn't. Thank you for meddling with me, Father. By the way, Sunday's teaching wasn't about gambling. The table of fortune is not a blackjack table. The wine of destiny is not something served up at a bar. And that was not the topic Sunday morning. Rick, you're an idiot. You talked about gambling. I know I did, but that wasn't the topic. That wasn't the point. You recall what I talked about? Rebellion and servants of the Lord. Which one do you want to be? Well, if I play around a poker, am I a rebellious one? I didn't say that. I may have hinted at it. <laughs> if I visit a casino, am I going to burn? I never said that. I may have implied. (laughs) Gang, the table of fortune is rejecting the sovereignty of God for the work of man. That's the issue. And don't forget, I said, let's not be superficial with any any of these easy sins to call out. Don't look at the super... Well, I stopped drinking, so I'm holy now. Where's your heart? I don't go to a casino any longer, so I'm right with God, right? Is your heart... It's not about your outward actions. It's about the inward person. And if the inward person is right with God, guess what? The outward is going to take care of itself. You don't have to worry about working the works of God if you believe in the one whom He has sent. It's a heart level issue. And that's where He keeps drawing us back. God promises gracious deliverance to those who choose to be servants of the Lord. To those who reject Him in rebellion, He promises trouble. And His deliverance, His grace does not come by luck and is not based on a gamble. Verse 13, Therefore, thus says the Lord God. Now, if you came tonight to hear something about the future, here we go. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, My servants will eat, but you will become hungry. Behold, My servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. 
Behold, my servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. Behold, my servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart, and you will cry out with a heavy heart, and you will wail with a broken spirit, and you will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you, but my servants will be called by another name. Yes, it did just say, the Lord God will slay you. Rebellious ones will be slain by the Lord, but my servants are going to eat and drink and rejoice and shout joyfully with glad heart. And in all of this, we have number four in your notes, if you're still keeping track of this little outline here. The last one was a gracious deliverance. Number four, a festive dinner party. That's what is described in verses 13 and 14. A festive dinner party in contrast with something that's not so good. But think about what a dinner this will be. The Lord is still answering the despairing prayer of the righteous remnant. He's still answering that prayer of Isaiah 64. And in answer, He says, Behold, look! Look at the spread! You're going to eat, drink, rejoice, shout joyfully! And we have just entered an end times timeline. Here in Isaiah 65, we've just stepped into it because the servants here are very clearly the remnant of Israel. That righteous remnant who stand in the tribulation. Revelation 7 goes in and describes exactly who they are. Tribe by tribe by tribe. And you can read that. And that 144,000 of Israel that are set apart and sealed to truly be servants of the Lord in that time of tribulation. And it's talking about them. And all those of Israel around them who also will have faith in Jesus Christ. But there's 144,000 Billy Grahams running around the earth. Jewish Billy Grahams. And they are preaching the Word through that first half of, of tribulation. But I want you to think through this. Because these will enjoy a great feast as opposed to the rebellious who are starving and ashamed. But does this whole picture... Does it sound familiar to you? That is... Some people are feasting and rejoicing while others are starving and weeping. I think Isaiah may here be referring to the contrast between heaven and earth during the tribulation. What do you mean, Rick? On earth, tribulation, hunger, thirst, shame, heavy hearts. In heaven, the marriage feast of the Lamb which includes eating, drinking, rejoicing, and shouting joyfully with a glad heart. And I think that that's what's being described here. Revelation 19, verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage feast of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. David said in Psalm 23, 5, I think prophetically you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil and my cup overflows. And Jesus said in that remarkable verse, Luke 12, 37, Blessed are those slaves whom the Master will find on the alert when He comes. Truly I say to you, He will then gird Himself to serve and have them reclined at the table and He will come up and wait on them. And my friends, that will be taking place in heaven, seven years of honeymoon, the church with Jesus. While on earth, seven years of tribulation is taking place. The most horrible time in the history of mankind. And check this out. Verse 15 gives us another clue that that's what's being talked about here. Verse 15, You will leave your name for a curse... 
to my chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you, but my servants will be called by another name. My servants will be called by another name. Perhaps, Christian? In Antioch, they were first called by another name. They were called Christians. But, that's not the point. It says, you will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones. I stumbled onto this just this afternoon. I didn't even know to look for this. I was looking up the word curse, just to understand exactly what he's talking about. Bible students, listen. The word curse in Hebrew is Shabua. Maybe it's too obscure. Shabua. Anyone know what Shabua means? Daniel uses it referring to the 70 Shabua. Shabua means seven. Shabua is the Hebrew word for what we would call a heptad. A heptad is a, is a, uh, a grouping of seven, like a dozen is a grouping of twelve. A heptad is a grouping of seven. Seven is Shabua. And he says, you will leave your name for a Shabua to my elect. In other words, your name will be a seven-year byword because Shavuah also can be, there's another Hebrew word that is similar that can be translated having to do with being cursed or being a byword. I think Isaiah chose the word, God chose the word specifically. Your name will be a seven-year byword to my elect. He's talking about the tribulation. Seven years. Well, Rick, you're pulling something out of there. Well, you know, if we didn't have Daniel chapter 9 talking about the 70 Shabuah, the 77s, if we didn't have the book of Revelation delineating the exact number of years, even to the day, to the weeks, to the months, well, then maybe you could say I'm pulling that out of nowhere. But Scripture talks about a seven-year period of time where tribulation is happening on the earth, but the church raptured, Harpazo, pulled out before that time, spends that time in the place that Jesus has prepared for us in heaven. The marriage feast of the Lamb. Eating, drinking, rejoicing, singing His praises while there is starvation and trouble on earth. Now, I understand some people would hear that and go, you Christians think you're all that. You're going to be up there having a feast. Well, we're all going through tribulation. (laughs) It's not my plan. And by the way, you don't have to be among those here going through tribulation. Believe in Jesus. And immediately, your invitation will arrive in the mail. Show up to the feast. You're included. Come on. Be part of what God offers to everyone. This is not exclusive. It is totally inclusive. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Everybody who chooses to come to that feast is welcome. Those who choose not to will be hungry will be thirsty, will be walking with heavy spirit and broken hearts. Verse 16 says, Blessed is He, and now we step out of tribulation into, out of that seven year time period, into the millennial kingdom. Watch this. Blessed is He who is blessed where? Where does it say in your Bibles? In the earth. Back on earth. Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten because they are hidden from my sight. Welcome to the entrance to the millennial kingdom when there is blessing on the earth unlike there has ever been. It will be a marvelous, perfect time. And Revelation 20 verse 6, referring to that kingdom age, says, Blessed. 
And holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. There's where we get the millennial number. And five other times in Revelation 20. Six times. A thousand year reign. And it correlates perfectly with the promises God gave to Israel to have a kingdom on earth with Messiah ruling and reigning from the throne in the temple in Jerusalem for a thousand years. It all comes together in that glorious kingdom. And what kind of assurance do we have that that kingdom will come? Watch this, verse 17. For behold, I create. Stop. Here's your assurance. I create. He uses the word, the same word, which was the very first thing we've ever heard about God doing. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. To create, the word create is bara. B-A-R-A, note that. Bara is the word used in Genesis 1.1. Bara is the same word used here in in, uh, Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I, Bara, I create new heavens and a new earth. I create. Bara means literally to create something out of nothing. He doesn't borrow, he baras. Okay? He doesn't say, I'm going to take from all these uh, supplies and I'm going to build something cool. That's what we do. We have the same creative spark that God does, but nobody has ever on the planet created something out of nothing. We always use materials that are already there created by God. Only God creates something where there is nothing at all. He pulls it all together. He creates it to pull all together. I mean, it's it's mind-boggling to think about something from nothing. But my friends, as certain as the very first creation of something from nothing, there now comes a new creation of something from nothing. Keep that in your minds. We're talking about number five in our list here, a future design. A future design, verse 17. Behold, I borrow, I create, that is something from nothing, new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Praise the Lord for that. Do you have any old aches, old hurts, old pains, old scars, old abuses? Things that you're so thankful you don't remember very often, but every now and then they creep into your memory and you remember what was done to you or what you went through or what you experienced or the heartaches of your life. You're not going to remember them. You will never remember them again. God gives us this this great grace that when He creates the new heaven and the new earth, and I've shared this in here before, there will only be one person in all of eternity who remembers everything that has ever happened, and that's the Lord. You and I will forget. We won't forget. I'll tell you what, people with Alzheimer's are some of the happiest people in the world. Besides, they meet new people every day. I'm sorry, that wasn't nice. Just kidding. We will forget our pain. We will forget our anguish. How in the world can God wipe away every tear if we can remember brothers and sisters and family who have been lost because they never accepted Jesus? Let me tell you, if your heart aches for them now, it would ache, it would ache far more a hundred, a thousand, a billion years into eternity. But God says, no, the former things will not come to mind. 
I am giving you this grace. We will start fresh. We will start new. It's not that we're all going to forget each other. It's just that we won't remember the things that hurt. And He truly will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Verse 18 going on, He says, But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create, in what I borrow. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. Now, He just said I created Jerusalem out of nothing. In other words, He's not taking old Jerusalem to make new Jerusalem. He's creating new Jerusalem. The old one has nothing to do with it except the same name. I create Jerusalem for rejoicing your people for gladness. I also rejoice in Jerusalem. I will be glad in my people and there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. The new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, all something from nothing. And John the Apostle writes about these things in great detail in Revelation 21 and 22. And when you go home tonight, I encourage you, read those two chapters before you go to bed. You will go to bed with a big old silly smile on your face. A big grin. Wow. Really? I mean, this is what we... I mean, He described it for us. He gives us a picture, a vision of the new heaven, the new earth, and new Jerusalem. And it is just incredible. And by the way, the book of Isaiah and the book of Revelation complement each other, supplement each other wonderfully. This section in Isaiah 65 and Revelation 21 and 22, they're parallel passages. And we're not going to go to Revelation 21 and 22 right now. There's just not time. But you can do that and think these things through and, and just revel in the joy that God promises. But here's the distinction, by the way, and I always wondered this. There's a distinction between the millennial kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth. We're about to head now. We're going to take a step back. The new heavens and the new earth come after the millennial kingdom. And the millennial kingdom comes first. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth in verses 17, 18, and 19. But in verse 20 on out, he now goes back and talks about the millennial kingdom. How in the world do we know that? Because the kingdom age is going to happen here, on a renovated, restored, refreshed planet Earth. Jerusalem in the Kingdom Age is the same Jerusalem that's sitting there right now, only restored and refreshed. This planet will be the same planet during the Millennial Kingdom, but it will be restored to Eden-like conditions. It will once again be a paradise all the way around the globe. You're not going to be able to go anywhere and go, ooh, it's going to be amazing. The whole planet. And Jesus comes and He restores everything beautifully. The new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem are not restored. They are brand new. And what He's about to describe in the kingdom age, that millennial, that thousand year reign, that's a restored earth. And it'll be marvelous. But it's still the earth. New heavens, new earth will not be borrowed. They will be borrowed. God will create brand new something from nothing. This whole earth is going to be destroyed. Make no bones about it. This earth is going to burn. It will be burnt toast. It's going to be history. You're not going to want to have anything to do with it. Along with the heavens and the universe and all of creation. Keep your finger there and quickly, right now, run over to Second Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. I'm just going to read this to you, but you really, these are things you need to see with your own eyes. Peter very clearly talks about it. And I, I had trouble understanding how does this all fit together? We're going to understand this within a second or two here. How does it fit? 
Okay, we've already talked about there's that seven-year tribulation period. And Jesus returns, and there's a thousand-year reign, a millennial kingdom, and then judgment comes. And following that judgment, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. That's the outline. Now listen, I'll show you why. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The day of the Lord begins at the beginning of the tribulation, and it will end when He destroys the earth. Okay, it's a long day. (laughs) The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements, and the the Greek word there is, I think it's stoichia. I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. But that word describes the elemental table. It describes literally all the way down to the nucleus of an atom, which we know shouldn't hold together. It's called Columns Law. And the negative and the positive particles within the nucleus of an atom should not be able to... You know, positive pushes away positive, right? So you've got negative in one part, positive in the other part, and they flow together. But if you get negative and negative, they can't be together. You get positive and positive particles, they can't be together. Guess what? In the center of the nucleus of an atom, you have all positive particles. It should explode. Every one of us should get... That may be the reason for spontaneous combustion, although I'm not sure. (laughs) We should just blow apart. Every particle that holds this world together should blow apart. There's one reason it doesn't. And it's Jesus Christ who holds all things together. It's not the atomic glue that the nuclear physicists have come up with. Atomic glue, that's what they call it. It's atomic glue. You guys are like brainy. Couldn't you come up with something better than that? It's the Elmers of the world. I don't know. Atomic glue, they say, holds it together. Peter says right here, long before science started to figure out what was inside the elements, he says the elements, they're pent up. They've got incredible power in them. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are be destroyed, destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements, there it is again, will melt with intense heat. Those positive protons in there are just going to... They're going to do exactly what they were created to do. But what God has kept them from doing... Lo, these many years. And he says, according to his promise, verse 13, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwell. And my theology with that growing up was that we just run along till the end of time and then God comes, destroys everything, and starts off heaven and off we go. And that's it! And I heard about these weird fringe groups who talked about the rapture of the church, you know, and the thousand year reign. Ooh, that's just bizarre. That fantasy talk, you know. Because I couldn't see, how does that all fit together? When does this happen? If Jesus returns, sets up the millennial kingdom, restores earth and rules and reigns from there, and then God comes in the white throne judgment, when? Does this destruction happen and this brand new heaven from nothing and this new earth from nothing and the new Jerusalem from nothing? It happens immediately after the millennial kingdom at the great throne judgment. Listen to this verse. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who sat upon it, listen, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. At that 
great throne judgment. And we'll be there, not being judged. We will already have been a thousand years in our glorified body, a thousand and seven years in our glorified bodies. Marvelous. But we'll be there, and at the judgment, when the dead are called up from the grave, when those who want to be judged by their works are judged by their works, in that moment, while that's going on, God destroys heaven and earth and the universe. It's gone. Toast. But if God can create something from nothing, as He did in the very beginning... And if God is going to create something from nothing again, as in the new heavens, earth, and Jerusalem, is it so hard to believe that He's going to establish the coming kingdom? That's nothing. That's easy. And that's what He talks about next. Number six, I think the final one for us, an age of pure delight. Look at verse 20. Describing that thousand-year reign of Christ, that millennial kingdom, no longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100. That will be our youth group. Okay, everybody between 100 and 300, go on to youth group now. Because people will live so long, 100 years old will be like nothing. You'll be a whippersnapper. Yeah, those 100-year-olds, they don't know anything. You know? And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. Now check this out. With the earth restored to an Eden-like condition, absolute perfection, just beautiful, people are going to truly, in the famous words of that theologian Spock, they will live long and prosper. (laughs) They're going to live long. In fact... With the earth and the kind of condition it was in when Adam was alive, how long did Adam live? 939 years. Almost a thousand years. Methuselah lived 969 years. Noah, 950 years. And there are people who will be born into the millennial kingdom who may live the entire time. The entire thousand years. There are people who will never die in that kingdom. By the way, if you wonder how can the earth get repopulated after the tribulation and after so much death and destruction and all of that, think about how much population can happen when a generation is several hundred years. It's going to repopulate quickly and fast. And yes, there will be, note that, children born. Why is that? Because there are going to be people in their natural human state who are ushered into this millennial kingdom. The righteous remnant of Israel. Survivors, perhaps, if there are any who are not Jews, survivors of the tribulation who come to faith in Jesus during the tribulation are going to be ushered into the kingdom in their human state. We won't be. I mean, we'll be there, but we won't be in our natural human state. We'll be in our supernatural human state. We will already have our glorified bodies. I love that. Having been caught up before this and changed, Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye, We'll be in our eternal glorified bodies. We will never die again. We will not be subject to sin. We'll be Jesus' righteous dudes and dudettes. <laughs> and I'm excited about this. It's just so exciting to me to think about this. But you might ask, well, why will some people die at all? If it's so perfect, if it's so wonderful, why will people still die? Because where there is sin, there is death. And here's a shocking piece of information in that perfect millennial kingdom. Man will still have a sin nature. In fact... 
Revelation 20 verses 1 and 2 tells us Satan is bound. That alone is going to make sinning a little harder. His demonic host, not present. So that's going to make sinning more difficult. Jesus Himself reigning from Jerusalem over all planet earth. Man, the righteous rule of Jesus is going to be harder to sin in those days. And the government of Jesus worldwide spread throughout all the earth. Ruling and reigning with Him in righteousness. Sin is not going to be an easy thing to pull off. But the sin nature of natural man is still there. And if there's sin, there is death. And so yes, there will be children born. There will be people dying during that kingdom age. Look at the very last part of verse 20. He says, And one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. That's not just a picture of someone... You know, dying young. The word one there in the Hebrew, and you might want to note this in your Bibles, it's important. The word one is kata. From the same word kata'a, which means sin. Literally, the sinner who does not reach the age of a hundred will be thought, and take the word thought out because that's added in there. So in italics, shouldn't be there. The one, the sinner who does not reach the age of a hundred will be accursed. There will be those whose sin finds them out and they die young those who don't are going to live long long many many years they will build houses verse 21 and inhabit them they will plant vineyards and eat their fruit they will not build and another inhabit they will not plant and another eat your stuff's not going to get ripped off because everyone's going to have so much everyone's going to be so prosperous it's not going to be like hey He's got one more apple tree than I do. No, you just plant another one, dude. You're fine. Everyone's going to have all that they need and more. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people, and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. How cool is that? The lifetime of a tree? There are trees sitting in Gethsemane today that are 2,000 years old. The lifetime of a tree. People are going to live a long, long time. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants, their seed, that same little seed from that cluster of grapes that everybody thought was bad, but God protected a remnant, their seed will be with them. Children born. People growing up and living in the Millennial Kingdom. Can you imagine? They will know nothing else. My children know nothing but the world with computers. My children did not grow up in a world that didn't have computers. I did. I remember it well. I miss it, to be honest. My kids grew up with it. They're just comfortable with it, accustomed to it. There will be people who grow up in the Millennial Kingdom. And that's all they've ever known. Beauty, perfection, prosperity... Eden, Jesus, His government, all you could ever want or ask for or imagine. And yet, because of the sin nature of man, Revelation 20 tells us at the end of the chapter, there will still be a rebellion. At the end of that, thousand years of perfection, man will still rebel. A massive worldwide rebellion. That's amazing to me. Now, by the way, again, the reason we, another reason we know this part of chapter 65 speaks of the millennial kingdom rather than the new heaven, new earth is because there's birth and death going on here. Okay? In the 
New heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, we step on into eternity, where life is eternal. But in that millennial age, talked about from verse 19 through the end of the chapter, people are being born, people are dying, people are in their natural human state. It's the millennial kingdom. So Isaiah makes that clear for us. Verse 24, let's finish. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. And dust will be the serpent's food. That line just simply means snakes aren't biting anymore. Your ankle will not be their food. Just the dust. They're just going to eat the ground. Bummer for them. They will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Isaiah repeats what he said in Isaiah 11, verses 6-9. through He describes the same thing again. And we can only assume that because of this, and prophecies from Micah and other prophets as well, that even the animal kingdom in the kingdom of Christ will be radically transformed. It's going to be a marvelous time. And gang, it is just ahead of us. In the short term... If Jesus were to come tonight, the Millennial Kingdom is going to start in seven years. If He doesn't come tonight, the Millennial Kingdom will start seven years after He comes. But we're that close. The best news to me in all of this happens to be verse 24. Let me read it to you one more time. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. Remember, Isaiah 65 is God's answer to the prayer of Isaiah 64. This whole thing is an answer to Isaiah's prayerful plea. His plea for mercy. His plea for grace. For rescue. For deliverance. And God goes into it. And He doesn't talk about a a minuscule deliverance like coming back from Babylon. He doesn't talk about a deliverance like the diaspora of the whole world slowly coming back to Israel and having to fight for every acre. He's talking about a perfect lasting eternal deliverance that happens at the beginning of that millennial kingdom and will just continue right on into eternity. It's God's answer to prayer. And we began tonight's study with a prayer of faith from Psalm 69.13. What I didn't tell you about that verse, but you may recall because we studied it a while ago, Psalm 69 is a prophetic prayer in and of itself. Because Psalm 69 is a prayer that Jesus more than likely prayed, and we connected it to Him when we studied it, when He was in the pit at Caiaphas' house waiting for His crucifixion. It was Jesus who would pray, As for me, my prayer is to You, O Lord, and an acceptable time. O God, in the greatness of Your loving kindness, answer me with Your saving truth. Jesus' prayer was always... Not my will, but yours. And Jesus' prayer was always in your time. That's how He prayed. And that time will soon be upon us. But I'll tell you this about verse 24. It will come to pass before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. Guess what, brothers and sisters in Christ? That time is already upon us. We already, by the grace of Jesus Christ, before we even call, He has heard us. He's already answering before we've lifted up a single word of prayer. So put that into your faith the next time you pray. He's already heard you. Let's bow. Holy Father, what a marvelous, marvelous prophecy. Thank you so much for 
revealing these things and describing these things. And Lord, we thank You for being so clear through the servant Isaiah. Wow, your, Your Spirit just knows how to speak and touch our hearts. Father, make us faithful. May we be those who pray faithfully and live faithfully and are found faithful when You come. Because Lord, I believe absolutely that every word of what You answered Isaiah with in this chapter will come to pass. Every word will come true. Everything will be exactly as You said it would be. Just as it was exactly what You said would happen, Jesus, when You came the first time. So we believe and know that the prophecies of Your second coming will be fulfilled to the letter. Until You come, Lord, may we be people of faith who pray knowing our God hears us immediately. And we praise You, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.